Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Catherine Turk, an assistant professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Her book, Equality on Trial, Gender, and... Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Catherine Turk, an assistant professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Her book, Equality on Trial, Gender and Rights in the Modern American Workplace, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, is the topic of this show. Turk explores how women tested the boundaries of workplace equality following the passing of Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The understaffed Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was given the task of interpreting the ambiguous meaning of sex equality. Thousands of letters flooded the commission, appealing to broader notions of fairness and sexual equality. The ambiguity of the law allowed women to assert expansive interpretations to include safer workplaces, higher wages, flexible schedules, equal pay, and comparable worth. The EEOC struggled to apply the law as it dealt with sex-specific protective state laws, industry practices, and common-sense notions of gender. The backlog of claims pressed the EEOC to narrow the definition of sex equality and turn to statistics in developing cases to be tested in the courts. Turk examines multiple legal cases, union and industry conflicts that shaped the limits of sex equality, falling short of fundamental change for working class women. Title VII was a powerful weapon that weakened the sex division of labor, but it was, it was unable to overturn the white male breadwinner standard. Here is my conversation with Catherine Turk. Now let me introduce you to the author, Catherine Turk. Hello, Catherine. Hi there, Lillian. How are you? Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Before we get into the book, which is very interesting, there's a lot of interesting things to talk about, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Equality on Trial. Well, the project actually came out of my undergraduate thesis, which um, not every professional historian can say. Um, I was an undergraduate in the early 2000s at Northwestern University, which is just outside of Chicago. And my advisor at that time, Nancy McLean, who um, is a wonderful women's historian, suggested that for my thesis, my senior thesis, I might think about um, sort of what kinds of sources and interesting stories were in my own backyard. And so got really interested in the Chicago chapter of now and its activism around employment rights in the 1970s and how now's um, local chapters were in some ways doing more innovative, interesting things than was happening at the national level. Um, And so I wrote that undergraduate thesis, which actually became the sort of backbone of the third chapter of my book. Um, I went to graduate school at the University of Chicago, where I continued to look at questions of women and work, uh, but became increasingly interested in legal history and the sort of questions around how um, women, but also some men, sort of sought to um, 
advance an expansive interpretation of what workplace equality could be. And so um, the book ended up uh, becoming uh, the dissertation in the book is a, a study of uh, women and men who had sort of broad notions of what the law could do in terms of guaranteeing them a sort of robust form of sex equality at work. And so the book goes through different case studies where we can see how more expansive understandings of workplace sex equality became narrowed sort of as they were put into practice. Okay. Now, your book is talking about the aftermath of the passage of Title VII of the Civil Rights Law Act. Can you talk a little bit about what that Title VII was for people who don't know? What was that? Sure. So the Civil Rights Act was um, sort of the brainchild of President John F. Kennedy, uh, who uh, he developed this sort of omnibus civil rights bill uh, designed primarily to ameliorate ameliorate different forms of race discrimination. And um, so Kennedy is sort of pushing this bill in the early 1960s. He's tragically assassinated. And Lyndon Johnson decides to champion the bill in Kennedy's uh, wake after Kennedy's death. And um, as part of Well, historians sort of debate why sex was ever added to Title VII of the bill, which is the part that deals with employment discrimination. Um, A very conservative Southern lawmaker named Howard Smith, um, a congressman from Virginia, suggested adding sex to the the part that um, deals with employment to Title VII. Uh, Whether he was trying to kill the whole civil rights bill or whether he was motivated by some kind of um, conservative feminist impulse, if you read the congressional record, there's certainly a strong suggestion that he would prefer that there be no Civil Rights Act at all, um, and that he thought the idea of workplace equality for women was um, was fairly absurd. Uh, but the, so, but so, sex is added to Title VII, and the law passes with uh, workplace sex equality as one of its main aspects. And so, um, part of what Title VII does, uh, the, the sex portion of it, is that it butts up against hundreds of different. Um, protective labor laws, what were called protective labor laws, that states had on the books at this point that required employers to to treat men and women differently in the workplace precisely on account of sex. And so um, this new federal law, Title VII, raises a lot of, raises more questions than it answers in terms of um, what working women's new rights will be. What is, what was the position of women in the workplace employment before Title VII? Can you kind of give us the scene of what it looked like? Sure. I mean, if you look at employment statistics from the 1950s and 60s, um, more and more women proportionally are working outside the home, sort of engaged in paid labor. Actually, in every decade of the 20th century, that's true. Um, but the workplace was highly sex segregated, um, highly racially segregated, but perhaps even more highly sex segregated. So a job like uh, like secretary would have been um, heavily female Dominated. 96, 97% of, of workers working as secretaries uh, were women, for example. Uh, so certain jobs that, um, that women could get out in the paid labor force uh, would have included teachers, nurses, um, jobs that we think of uh, today as, as perhaps we still associate them with jobs that women do. Um, but discrimination uh, in the form of unequal treatment and harassment was pervasive. Um, to the extent that that logic was even codified in um, classified ads, where um, seem a little bit sort of archaic now, but um, it used to be that a very common way to find a job would be to look at the newspaper classified uh, or job ads, and um, those were routinely seg- segregated by sort of help wanted men, help wanted women, and so um, that reflected this idea that men and women were sort of suited for different positions in the labor force, and for the most part, they had they had very different positions, even when they worked side by side. 
Now, the Equal Opportunity, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was set up to enforce Title VII. Is that correct? Well, to, to, inter- to interpret it. Interpret yeah, it doesn't it. have any enforcement powers until the early 1970s. But yeah, so yeah, so the EEOC, which is part of one of the problems that it um, that it uh, faces in its first few years, which I talk about in my first chapter. But yes, it's the EEOC is set up to help. Um, interpret Title VII and help uh, encourage employers and workers to figure out a way to um, to make the law real. Now, the problem, of course, is having to define what is sexual sex discrimination, what is equality, what is sexual equality in a workplace. And it sounds real straightforward. <laughs> yes. <laughs> sex equality, you just treat everybody the same. But there's all kinds of problems with that that the EEOC is running into. It's not as clear cut. So talk about some of the issues that the EEOC had early on in trying to define how to what this law meant. Sure. Well, um, maybe I'll answer your question um, historiographically a little bit. Um, there's been wonderful work by historians, Dorothy Sukabel, I would say, primary or paramount among them, looking at the sort of robust labor feminism that women in the early early 20th century and mid 20th century um, sort of uh, this activism through labor unions to to um, help working women have a form of equality that can also respect sex difference. So flexible leave policies, um, equal pay based on comparable work, not necessarily identical work and um, really sort of broad, flexible protections that don't require men and women to be treated exactly the same. And many historians have argued that Title VII, the passage of Title VII in 1964, marks a turn, marks a sort of conservative turn, that suddenly working women are more interested in um, having access to male-dominated jobs and weakening gender as a salient category in the workplace. And so when I went to the EEOC archives, that was what I expected to find, uh, women's letters to EEOC officials complaining that they had all the qualifications to be, um, I don't know, Steve Doors or uh, truck drivers or what have you, these male-dominated jobs, but they just weren't given the chance. But in fact, I found what I found was much more complex. Uh, A lot of women's early claims once Title VII is passed have to do with the same kinds of claims labor feminists had been making since the early 20th century about flexibility, about uh, pay scales that reflect the value of work and um, uh, the cost of living as opposed to just sort of the lowest possible rate an employer can get away with paying, um, medical leave policies, uh, work that, frankly, work that allows you to have a life, too. So a lot of the working class women who are writing to the EOC in, in its first few years have a vision of workplace equality that's quite broad and expansive. Now, and the EOC is also trying to sort through all the different claims that are very particular. Different women have different issues and different situations, and they're inundated. You're talking about thousands of letters that are coming in, and they're trying to figure out how are we going to respond to all these women. And they come up with some, a great, some creative solutions <laughs> to how to handle it. Talk about yes. what, you know, what systems they put in place to try to handle the volume of claims. Sure. Well, another way that historians have often written about this moment in the mid-1960s when the EEOC is set, is set up is to describe the agency as just thoroughly sexist. And certainly some of the people who worked there did have these very sexist attitudes. Uh, there are several of the commissioners were very conservative, um, at least in terms of uh, gender issues, and really felt like their job was to work on these race-based claims and the gender-based claims were kind of unimportant or a waste of their time. But because the EEOC is set up 
at the very 11th hour, uh, President Lyndon Johnson doesn't even appoint commissioners until right before the commission opens. They don't have any staff. Um, and they meet an immediate backlog of several thousand just free-form claims. So what my first chapter tries to do is is convey a sense of how the EEOC tries to make sense of sort of conceptual but also logistical chaos. And in the absence of a concrete definition of what its policy is towards sex equality, some of the attorneys who work there come up with really creative ideas, as you said, to um, to try to find a way to meet in the middle between what these women are asking for and um, what their employers think they should have to do, and frankly, also there are unions involved. So, what are the what, what are the unions' um, seniority systems and other kinds of uh, practices require? Uh, what are they required to do now under Title VII? Um, so, I'm just thinking there there are examples in the book of EEOC commissioners or attorneys who work for the EEOC um, going to great lengths to try to understand what these women actually think Title VII means for them and find a way to deliver them some kind of uh, relief. Don't they try, uh, try to come up with something like a protected class, defining a protective class, right? Don't they do that? I don't remember that. I'm sorry. Okay, a protective class. Basically, you you you, just, you, you use statistics and say, okay, all these women have had, this particular issue has happened to them. Let's put them all together and do a class yes, action. Yes, towards the end of the chapter, yes, they do. Um, so over, over its first um, maybe seven or eight years, the EOC is, is sort of getting the message from the Johnson administration and eventually the Nixon administration that if they want to get more funding and be taken seriously as a strong uh, federal agency, and frankly, the strong agency that it is now, they were going to have to streamline their processes, um, cut down the backlog of claims, develop standardized forms that um, that uh, complainants would have to fill out. So rather than just writing a free form letter describing what happened to you and claiming that you're a victim of discrimination because of these experiences, suddenly you have to check um, different boxes, right, and fit your claim into one or the other uh, or another category. And so, yes, yeah, so, so by the end of, um, by, the, by the early 1970s, the EEOC has sort of used these systems of um, sort of narrowing its definition of what sex discrimination is and, um, they they got they get much more money from Congress and they get some enforcement powers, but um, along the way they've sacrificed a more flexible flexible and uh, complainant driven definition of what discrimination is. Now there a law can be passed, but it doesn't really mean anything unless someone enforces it or someone uh, has a claim under that law. And one of the first cases that you talk about in Chapter Two is the New York Times case. Yes. What happened? What was the situation for women at the New York Times? And we're talking here about a lot of different kinds of women, from uh, professional yes. women to women who are doing lower level jobs. So it's not one group of women. It's multiple. And it's also the fact that some of the women were African-American women. They're not all the same. So talk about the challenges of that case. What were the issues and, and the different groups and at the New York Times? Yeah, so my second chapter looks at, um, at, at some of the internal organizing that women do in their workplaces uh, once Title VII has been passed and um, they sort of begin to come together and there's sort of a broad cultural understanding that um, there's a new law against sex discrimination and women are going to have to to come together um, and formulate claims in order to get the law to work for them. So I use the New York Times 
class action lawsuit as an example of the kinds of organizing women are doing and the kinds of legal claims they're putting together. So, yeah, so as you mentioned, there are lots of different um, jobs that women have at the New York Times in um, in the mid-1960s uh, from uh, reporter or editor on the women's pages, so a separate part of the newspaper that was thought to um, reflect women's interests and tastes and preferences, um, uh, classified ad salespeople who, um, there were also men who had that job, but the women sort of had, uh, systematically lower pay and worse conditions as ad salespeople. Uh, there were a few reporters and editors who did work in the sort of main part of the paper and experienced, uh, myriad forms of discrimination and harassment in those jobs. Um, but most of the women who worked at the New York Times, uh, were secretaries, uh, researchers, um, sort of cordoned off in these uh, crit- critical but uh, highly undervalued support jobs. And so um, were some of those women out- were some of those women already in a union? Yes, yes, many of them were in the um, uh, the, the American Newspaper Guild. Yeah, the Times had a very strong uh, chapter of the Newspaper Guild. Okay, so uh, I know the first thing they did was form these a caucus, a caucus, the women's caucus within the New York Times. We- it was interesting how women did that and just the politics of trying to not uh, alert management, you know, of what they're doing. Yeah. So their initial idea is that their strength is going to be in their numbers. And um, a few of the uh, sort of more senior women at the paper come together for this lunch and um, realize that if they can, that, that, that women, women across throughout the times, right, including the cafeteria workers and janitors that I, I forgot to mention earlier. So women in blue collar, white collar and pink collar jobs are um, they're, 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 they all face discrimination, even if it takes different kinds of different, slightly different forms, depending on what job a woman is in. And so they um, start to organize. They uh, they rent an office inside the Times building that they can lock and they use to um, sort of collect information and receive messages and mail from women at the Times uh, in all these different positions. They advertise the meetings in the women's bathroom on the backs of the um, stalls. To uh, They're not trying to keep it, their activities a secret from the men per se, but they just want to make sure that they reach as many women as possible. And um, they begin to formulate some demands that have to do with... Um, Making the jobs that all that that most women are clustered in better, uh, more more flexible, more manageable, um, as well as uh, kinds of affirmative action that would in- ensure that some of these male-dominated jobs are opened up to women. So initially, they have a really broad vision of what uh, they want to get from manage from management, and a really expansive idea of what uh, sort of workplace justice looks like in that kind of office setting. Right away, though, this, in this chapter, you begin to see very quickly the divergent interests between the professional women, the women who want who are editors or college educated, who want to be able to advance on the editorial side, and the the pink collar, blue collar women. Mm-hmm. Can mm-hmm. you talk about that? And this is this this runs through your whole book. There's this division that's happening. That's an economic class division. Yeah. Uh, um- there, there's, I think there's sort of a broader strain within 1960s and 70s feminism of a real interest to find something that's universal about all women, right? To sort of claim that feminism will only be as strong as its, um, as its underlying goals. Um, and yet, yes, I mean, the, the, the women are, they're, they're, 
they're differentially placed from the very beginning, and they do have different kinds of economic interests, different um, different relationships to the boss, and so different um, ideas about what's fair. And I think, as you mentioned before, some of these women were leaders in the union, uh, especially Betsy Wade, who um, is a prolific editor, uh, incredibly uh, talented person, and just knows that there she's not she's getting passed over promotion again and again and again solely because she's a woman. Um, and she she has a real sort of class consciousness and a real sense that all women at the times are going to need to rise together. Uh, but some of the other professional women don't quite understand why they need they all need to band together or why their interests are uh, should be sort of perceived as aligned. So what happens to that case, the New York Times case? They reach a settlement 10 years later that um, has uh, abandoned or at least sort of submerged the working class women's claims that had much more to do with um, raising pay and feminized jobs, making those jobs more flexible and more um, sort of physically, less physically demanding. Um, they all get, uh, everyone who's involved in the case gets a modest annuity at just a few hundred dollars, depending on um, whether they were named plaintiffs or not. Um, they get their attorney's fees paid. and uh, But the Times institutes a very aggressive affirmative action plan which is really the heart of the settlement, and which, frankly, has, has helped to produce uh, the New York Times of today, which um, I don't think is an entirely gender egalitarian workplace, but there are certainly more women editors, columnists, uh, leaders of that paper, sort of women on the masthead than there were before. But I do argue that in some ways the, the elite women's gain, the road to the elite women's gains was paved by focusing on certain legal arguments at the expense of others. Um, these attorneys sort of come to the table with preconceived ideas about how to win an employment discrimination case. And um, they decide that if they're going to get anywhere against this incredibly powerful and intransigent corporation, the best thing to do is to emphasize the claims of those women whose uh, resumes were so immaculate com- and compared so favorably to their male counterparts that the only reason that they weren't higher up in the corporation was their sex. And so the working class women's more complex claims end up getting sort of sidestepped. I thought that was a very interesting part of your book, uh, which kind of leads us to the next next case that you do several cases throughout your book. But I probably th- I think probably the Sears and the, and the now uh, chapter in Chicago, that is the, mo- the most interesting. So can you talk about what was going on at Sears? That case took a long time to even resolve, and it wasn't good. <laughs> and how this, but what how this Sears case ended up really affecting the the now the national organization now and its relationship with local chapters. Yes. So um, first, to, to just a little bit of background about Sears. Um, it's it's still around. It's still with us uh, probably today, known mostly for the Ken, Kenmore appliances and its sort of home goods. But um, 50 years ago and even 100 years ago, Sears was was prolific. It was one of the most uh, sort of visible and omnipresent retailers in American life. You kind of couldn't avoid Sears. Um, and sort of an alarming proportion of Americans, alarmingly high proportion of Americans, have a Sears credit card or work for Sears or have some kind of relationship to Sears. So um, I sometimes say that it sort of the, was sort of the Walmart of its day, just in terms of how uh, frequently you would have come into contact with Sears. So it's sort of, it, we live in sort of a more fragmented retail 
environment now, but Sears was everywhere. Um, and it also had this reputation carefully honed over many decades as a real true American company in the sense of being a place where sort of you could get a good deal, you would get high quality products, and Sears was a great place to shop and a great place to work. But the women who worked at Sears knew otherwise. Uh, Sears was, was, was uh, developing and um, really pioneering new ways to keep women uh, contingent and impoverished working in their jobs. Uh, by the early 70s, when now Target Sears and tries to, um, tries to force it to reform some of its practices, uh, women and men, where they worked in identical jobs, they would call the men a buyer's assistant and the woman an assistant buyer. And, um, but the title, the, the jobs did not differ hardly at all, but, but the feminized job would be paid substantially less. Um, in sales, men would be in all the jobs where you got a commission on what you sold, uh, tires, appliances. Women would be segregated in sales jobs where there was no commission. So selling baby clothes, buttons, um, and so making much less, uh, in that, in that way. Uh, women were also all but barred from any kind of managerial jobs, which of course made the men in these even low level managerial jobs feel that perhaps, uh, they had some kind of superiority to these workers. Uh, because they they were sort of an all-male fraternity of managers. So the National Organization for Women is founded in 1966, and it, it's, it's initially founded by uh, middle-class and middle-aged women. Uh, Betty Friedan, who by then is a very famous author, envisions this group as a sort of professional, and she calls them an elite cadre of women and men, actually, who were going to advocate for incremental legal change. And they're very concerned that Title VII is not being enforced. Um, but very quickly, they, there's a huge outpouring of attention from women at the grassroots. And so by 1970, now is really something else. It's become this mass movement organization with hundreds of local chapters nationwide. And because now is sort of small at the top, all these local chapters are sort of coming up with their own definitions of what feminism is and what is a feminist issue and how to work for a feminist cause and sort of stretching now's umbrella to fit their understandings of what feminism is. And so I, that chapter looks at the Chicago uh, branch of now, which um, for reasons of probably its Midwestern location, but also the very labor oriented women who are the founders and early leaders of the Chicago chapter now, they become very interested in workplace discrimination. And Sears Roebuck is headquartered in Chicago. And so uh, these two sort of leaders in Chicago now end up pioneering this campaign to try to force both to try to try to, to, try to use Title VII uh, to force Sears to totally remake its employment practices. So they're sort of, they're, they're, they're foisting an expansive interpretation of Title VII onto this corporation to see what the EEOC will do. Now, the national organization takes up this cause from the Chicago now for a while. Yes. So the um, the leaders of now, in the, the first few presidents of now, sort of share this expansive vision about um, about how now strength will be in its size and how um, doctrinal unity and ideological unity is less important than uh, giving grassroots members and chapters the freedom to recruit and um, devise their own activities and um, and then bring them to the national organization. And so this is what happens with the Sears campaign, that these Chicagoans, Ann Ladkey and Mary Jean Collins and others 
uh, sort of experiment with this uh, way of gathering information about Sears. Sears, of course, won't tell them anything about the jobs women are doing. So they just go to Sears stores and talk to women. Um, they, they count who's working where, who's selling what, who has which jobs. They sort of cobble together this information and they take it to the national organization and they say, yeah, you know, there, everywhere there's a now chapter, there's a Sears Roebuck. So we could replicate this all over the country. And they, they understand that Sears might not take them seriously in the beginning, but if they could build a strong national campaign and get the government's attention and actually deliver the government uh, their evidence, right, all the evidence the EOC would need to make a case, they would simultaneously pressure the EOC and Sears and and hopefully bring some kind of a reckoning about. Now, in the end, though, what happens in that case, of course, is that now the national now abandons the Sears case. Yeah, so um, in the mid-1970s, there are a lot of class action lawsuits like this, uh, big, big Title VII lawsuits against some of the nation, many of the nation's largest corporations, uh, steel companies, car companies. And so the Sears case now delivers this evidence to the EEOC in the early 70s. And um, at this by this point, the, the EEOC has uh, declared that they, rather than um, looking at all different cases at once, they're going to really prioritize a handful of industry standard bearers, so sort of concentrate their resources. And in the mid-70s, Sears becomes one of its targeted corporations because of NOW's efforts. But um, there is sort of a faction fight brewing in the national organization. Uh, Some, like the Chicagoans, feel that NOW should really stay the course that um, policy policies like the Equal Rights Amendment were very important targets of their activism, but that they shouldn't pursue uh, ratification of the ERA at the expense of NOW's other priorities. And another group within NOW, uh, largely from the East Coast, has a different idea and sort of argues that uh, where the Chicagoans see healthy diversity, what they see is really chaos and disunity, and that NOW has gotten so big that the national the national office needs to impose more structure and impose more priorities, and whether because they didn't believe in, in the Sears campaign or because um, they wanted to sort of I don't know chasten or punish the folks from Chicago who had conceived of it. As soon as the leadership changes uh, in 1975, they discontinue the campaign right at the time when the EEOC has really taken it up. So it's sort of a it's a, it's a it's a story of um, sort of lost opportunities and poor timing. Now, what happened eventually? What something happened with that case? I can't remember. We talk about it, the Sears case in the 1980s. Sure. It was settled 19, somehow. Yeah, it, wind, it winds its way through the EOC and eventually through courts. Um, it wasn't settled actually. Uh, Sears won. So in the um, in the aftermath of um, now sort of handing the case over to the EOC and s- stopping any kind of pressure on the government agency or the corporation. Um, the case is it's left in the hands of the EOC, which by the mid-1980s is a much different agency. Um, it's headed by Clarence Thomas, peopled with much more conservative attorneys and bureaucrats. And so the EOC is fighting a case against Sears that it would really prefer not to be fighting at all. Um, two very famous historians testify in the case. That's probably what it's best known for. Uh, Joan Scott has written about this. Um, they testify about as to whether working women um, prefer to be in feminized jobs and don't mind uh, sort of making less money because they're sort of bound by the same cultural constraints that have sort of set up this gender division of labor in the first place. 
Uh, the other historian argues that if you look historically, women have worked in all different kinds of jobs. And when a gender division of labor has relaxed, such as during World War II, they rush into those formerly male-dominated jobs uh, because they're, they typically sort of are higher paid and um, better jobs. So um, the EEOC does not put forth a single witness to say that um, they that she experienced discrimination at Sears, whereas Sears puts forth several witnesses who say that they had never been discriminated against at Sears. And so um, uh, EEOC loses in federal court. I think it's 1986. So, um, but by this point, it's kind of, it's kind of a dinosaur by this point. It's the last of the big class action lawsuits to work its way through. Uh, And many of the, the, you know, who knows what would have happened if now had stayed really involved, but many of the activists, who who came up with the campaign, the Sears campaign, really felt that now had a crucial role to play in keeping the pressure on both Sears and the EEOC and making sure that there were witnesses, uh, there were um, women who could speak to what had happened to them at Sears. And uh, without that continued activist pressure, the um, Sears easily won that case. Now... When we think about play, uh, workplace ec- uh, equity, we think about equal pay, and that's still all, we still hear about it, equal pay. I think Hillary Clinton's talking about equal pay in the workplace. Mm-hmm. But the thing we don't talk about much, which is one of the topics of your, one of your chapters, is comparable worth. Yes. Which is yes. much harder. It's a slippery slope. But what is that? How do you define comparable? What is comparable? What are you comparing apples to oranges? And so talk about some of the problems in of defining comparable worth that I don't think it still has not yet been resolved. No, no. You, you've got women saying what they think it means. You have men saying what they think it means. You have unions. You have industry. You've got lots of people weighing in on it, but we still don't have a, a good definition of that. That's right. Well, so so back to those labor feminists uh, active in the mid-20th century, whom I was talking about a few minutes ago, um, they were really interested in in changing the law. And so in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, there's a lot of advocacy around uh, boosting women's pay through a federal law. And um, they start to get some traction in the early 1960s. Uh, but, the, but the question uh, that arises is what standard of equality would an Equal Pay Act hold employers to? Is it, is, does, it, does equal pay, uh, does, does it mean um, getting paid the same rate for a job that is identical? Uh, and how much would that actually help women in a starkly sex-segregated workplace where very few women were doing the same work as men? Um, and so these labor feminists in the 1950s and early 60s make this argument that, in fact, it should be equal pay for comparable work. So um, a much broader standard that um, that might, for example, uh, that, that would look at the skills involved, the level of difficulty, and um, had the potential to raise many more women's pay because it didn't it wouldn't only apply to women who were doing a job that was identical to men. And it looks like this comparability standard is going to pass in the early 1960s as Congress is debating the Equal Pay Act. But um at the last minute, through sort of a series of compromises and missed opportunities, the standard that gets passed is much narrower. Um, and so the Equal Pay Act that we still have today, which was passed in 1963, requires equal pay for work that is identical or substantially similar, so not comparable. Now, but titles – oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the comparable uh, – comparable worth cases were – you could – you see them in the examples that you use of service workers, public employees, and hotel workers. When you talk about hotel housekeepers versus the housemen, you mm-hmm. know, what they were doing and trying to compare 
what men were doing in a hotel situation and what women were doing as housekeepers. Um, talk about a, a bit about the how the unions and the hotel industry. There's a lot of people involved, in particularly in that those cases. Yeah. So, um, so another player in this whole story. Uh, or another type of player are federal agencies like the Department of Labor, uh, which issues uh, sort of recommendations or standards based on um, how different employers should apply the Equal Pay Act. And so there's a case coming out of Texas, I think in 1977, that has to do with um, the different kinds of janitorial work that men and women uh, do at uh, this time uh, in hotels, but also in office buildings, as you pointed out, um, uh, maintenance work or housekeeping work was very typically uh, sex segregated. So um, men doing housekeeping work, what might have been funneled into a job uh, called a houseman, which would have been um, doing sort of heavier lifting, perhaps moving furniture around, shampooing carpets, uh, uh, mowing the lawn outside, these types of things. Whereas women in housekeeping work would have done more uh, like, like what we would think of as a hotel maid today. So sort of cleaning room by room, uh, doing the same task many, many times uh, to meet their their quota. So the men's work was probably dirtier, uh, more physically demanding. Uh, the women's work also certainly dirty and physically demanding, but a little bit more uh, repetitive and predictable. Uh, and I should say, oftentimes, these maids ha- were supported in their work by uh, what was called a bath maid. So they wouldn't have to do the bathrooms in, in the hotel, uh, the rooms that they were cleaning. There was a separate person who sort of who, who took care of that and would do all the bathrooms on a floor or within um, a certain quota for the day. But the... Um, the question does then arise, is this work so similar that it should be paid the same? Uh, housemen were routinely paid uh, higher wages and sometimes much higher wages than the maids were paid for work that was certainly different on its face, but how different was it really? Or in terms of what was it, the value to the, insti- the, the, the hotel? Cleaning the rooms, would you could say, is as much va- valuable or more valuable even than the houseman mowing the lawn. Yeah, there's a certain there's a certain imperative to the daily uh, quota of rooms that a uh, house a housekeeper or a maid has to do, right? Because the guests in the room either they're just checking in and they certainly expect to have a clean room, or they've gone out for the day and they expect to come back and have their room cleaned and their bed made. Whereas um, if the houseman is I don't know preparing uh, a room or a section of the hotel for some kind of renovation. Um, it's, there's less of a um, immediacy, a time pressure, right? Perhaps the renovation could could take place next week, or uh, yeah, certainly less of an immediacy, as you mentioned. Um, but but the unions are very interested in how these uh, questions get resolved because they are also liable uh, for any kind of violation of Title VII. So and how, so the, yeah, oh, how, oh, the, how are the how are the unions interacting in these cases? Are they are they helping women? Are they are they trying to keep? Uh, their designations of what jobs are male jobs, or are they trying to open those up within the union definition? Well, it really depends on, um, I think this, this varies a little bit, uh, industry by industry. Uh, the fourth chapter of the book talks about um, public sector sort of office workers and how um, the unions are really fighting for, co- for comparable worth in that instance. Um, in these heavily feminized jobs of clerical workers, um, there's a, an argument that uh, that because the state as an employer uh, 
employs lots of different kinds of workers, um, it's, it's, it's not only illegal, but it, it's unfair to pay women in feminized jobs who work for the state less than uh, workers in blue-collar jobs that work for the state if they, if they pro- provide sort of an equal amount of value to their employer. And so Comparable Worth gets the most traction through unions like AFSCME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees that represents public sector workers. But in the case of hotel workers, um, I mean, the union is first and foremost concerned, well, in, in that case, that my fifth chapter is about hotel workers in, um, in New York City and their, their union, the Hotel Trades Council. Uh, they're certainly concerned that they could be liable for violating Title VII by bargaining for contracts that uh, that, that where, where housemen get paid more than maids do if the Department of Labor has come in and said, actually, those jobs are similar enough that, that they should have equal pay under the Equal Pay Act. Um, but the union is also, in that case, uh, dealing with much deeper uh, problems, uh, bargaining with um, a sort of conglomeration of hotel owners and managers that uh, is trying to... Um, exploit the union's weakness and um, sort of bargaining relative weakness and foist all kinds of changes onto the union. And so um, even as the union in that case is trying to equalize pay for maids and housemen, the maids themselves are very dubious that uh, equal pay will actually help them. Uh, They want higher pay, but they also are rightly concerned that the erosion of these categories will simply mean the elimination of the housemen and the bathmaids that have made their jobs uh, somewhat protected and uh, somewhat tolerable. And also they're concerned, like, we're going to have to move heavy furniture that we never had to do before. Because, right. because then comparable becomes the same, right? Right, right, right. And, and, and it gives, not only that, it gives employers justification for, merge, for merging and intensifying jobs, right, in the name of equality, Um so uh, part of what hotel owners are also doing at this point is in a, in a sort of mad scramble for customers, they're trying to make their hotels more luxurious. And what might make uh, a hotel more attractive for uh, a guest actually makes life much harder for the workers who have to clean their rooms uh, because every every added amenity, every extra mirror, coffee maker, um, heavy blanket or heavy mattress um, if a maid is cleaning 20 or 30 rooms a day, uh, she has to, the, the possibility for repetitive stress injury is, uh, is multiplied. And so that's what the maids are concerned about. They say, we don't want your equal pay if it's going to suggest that these jobs are interchangeable to the point where uh, you merge these categories and we just have to do all of it ourselves. And that's exactly what happens uh, in the lawsuit, the equal pay lawsuit that the hotel union and hotel owners uh, sort of, uh, bargain over uh, that the the union accepts higher pay for that wage category, but um, forfeits the gendered characteristics that had once made the maids' jobs uh, easier. Yeah, it's the whole thing of okay, you want to be equal to men, then you do the man's job here. <laughs> okay, I get it. It's infuriating. Okay. <laughs> now, now, there's at this point in your book, there's a there's a there's a little twist mm-hmm. because. All of a sudden, you're you're thinking, okay, we've been talking about women and women's, you know, comparable worth and equal pay and women's protection on the job, and all of a sudden, you got male nurses, <laughs> and it, and it starts sort of uh, kind of coming with together with gay rights in the workplace, the, you know, the idea of homosexuals having rights in the work to be able to be who they are and not be discriminated as men, and the nurses are. Part of this, not meaning that all male nurses are homosexuals, but 
but they, they, they're a wedge issue. Yes. Yes. So, um, I, I wanted to write about men in terms of Title VII. There's a wonderful book by uh, my, my friend Phil Tmeyer Phil about uh, the first male flight attendants Title VII cases. And in fact, uh, the sort of case of male flight attendants is one of the first cases that the EEOC takes on. And it's, it's, a, it's a huge victory for flight attendants uh, where the EEOC says that impl- uh, airlines can no longer uh, sort of feminize this category of work and not only not only were they reserving it for women they were um imposing incredibly uh strict height and weight restrictions and uh, age restrictions and so um it's these male flight attendants who uh force airlines to actually um admit that that job the flight attendant job its essence is getting people from point a to point b safely it's not about sort of being a sexualized a uh, cocktail waitress of some male businessman's fantasy, um, but I was still interested in how how men tried to use Title VII to uh, advance gendered claims. And another group that I came across that was also trying to use Title VII in these years was male nurses, another sort of feminized job. And um, they did win. And what, what I found with the case of male nurses was that it was very uh, fragmented. Some of them did win access to uh, nursing jobs, and of course, there well, many of them did. Uh, there were always male nurses, but um, many fewer around the mid-20th century. Um, but that they encountered a lot of resistance in areas of medicine or areas of health care that required intimate care for women and children. And um, they're up against not only sort of cultural attitudes about uh what's appropriate for men to do in a caring situation um, and hospital policies and sometimes patient preferences. Um, but uh, what, what I found so interesting was that at a time when very few women are um, sort of successfully becoming doctors themselves, a woman could have a male gynecologist. And in fact, that would have been very common until pretty recently. But the idea of having a male labor and delivery nurse was so um, unthinkable to so many. So uh, the case of male nurses, I think, really reflects the kind of gendered logic about who belongs and what kind of work that, um, I mean, it's just all based on our sort of stereotypes and ideas about what men and women should be like as they're expressed in the workplace. And I believe this is true that even today, uh, male nurses dominate in emergency rooms and acute care. Okay? Yes. Where you have to lift Body, people's bodies, or uh, it, there's a, a perception that there's a, a greater degree of skill, of some sort of intangible skill needed. So the male, the nursing profession is still gendered within it. Yes, yes, and um, that chapter concludes with um, yes, male nurses do have access to many areas of nursing, and um, a lot of them do. Uh, rise to the top in nursing sort of positions, administrating administrative positions, but um, they talk about what they call the, the concrete ceiling, that it can be hard to move up uh, because they are men and they face certain kinds of skepticism and scrutiny about their masculinity that um, they wouldn't have to face in a different kind of job. Uh, but they also talk about how um, there's sort of a suspicion that they've only gotten as far as they have in a sort of ambitious nursing career because they're men. Um, and I should say a lot of female nurses in the 1960s, 70s, when I, the, when sort of a lot of that chapter unfolds, were concerned that, 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 that nursing was sort of an all-female area of expertise and medicine, and perhaps it should stay that way. That if too many men became in charge of organizations like the American Nurses Association, or if too many men had positions of power within nursing, 
they would unseat women from this um, sort of traditionally feminized area of expertise. It was, yeah, it was their domain, and they had claimed it, and they wanted to keep it. And you can understand it, because there was not that many opportunities in terms of, you know, being a doctor. And now we can be doctors, so it's not such a big argument. So um, the, the last barrier to sex equality that you talk about has to do with fetal protection case, the fetal mm-hmm. protection case, mm-hmm. which I thought was very interesting because this is, you don't want to limit women and say you can't do this job because you're fertile and it could damage your fetus. But at the same time, you don't want to, the employer doesn't want to be caught in a situation where they get a lawsuit because they didn't protect the woman from harmful environmental factors. Can you talk a little bit about that and why that is, that's almost an a possible situation to get through. Yeah, so the la- one of the last cases I talk about in the book is um, a 1992 Supreme Court case called Johnson Controls, and it has to do with this company, uh, Johnson Controls, that makes, among other things, lead batteries. And many of its factories are in parts of the country where there aren't a lot of, of sort of comparable uh, really good, high-paying, blue-collar jobs. And uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, the highest-paying jobs at a battery factory like a Johnson Controls factory uh, are the ones that expose workers to uh, levels of toxins uh, like lead. And so uh, the question that companies like Johnson Controls had to sort of face was, um, as you said, you're right, what to do about uh, their sort of exposure to um to legal vulnerability for um, women who worked in those jobs, and uh, but then either didn't know that they were pregnant or didn't think that um, exposure to lead would harm their unborn fetus. What kind of what kind of responsibility did the company have there, and was it uh, because of its um, possible exposure to uh, this kind of uh, liability, financial liability, if a woman then went on to bear a child who had been um, sort of permanently damaged by this exposure, could companies use that justification to ban fertile women from those jobs? And so they go back and forth. They, they institute these bans saying that, um, you know, it's not sex discrimination to ban fertile women from these jobs because we're trying to protect them and we're frankly trying to protect ourselves. Um, but the women also have a very strong sex equality claim, saying that it's, um, you know, we have reproductive choice, reproductive control. You can't um, sort of paint with such a broad brush and ban all women from these uh, relatively high-paying jobs. And, and many, so, so there are examples of um, several women uh, facing this exact dilemma who worked for Johnson Controls and were told either to uh, make themselves unfertile by being sterilized or find a different job at the plant where, where they would make much lower wages. And so there were several women who were voluntarily sterilized and they talked about how uh, when faced with the choice to have another child or earn the wages from the lead exposure job that would allow them to adequately care for the children they already had, that that was a difficult choice, but that um, they ultimately choose to be able to, to stay in the lead exposure jobs. Um, and when the Supreme Court hears this case about uh, whether these fetal protection policies are legal, uh, the court says no, but but um, draws a very um, come, come they come up with a very narrow definition of what employers have to do and the kind of equality that they're going to protect. So um, they basically say to these companies that if you 
if you have your employees sign a waiver that they understand that they're exposing themselves to lead that could possibly harm them or their unborn children, um, that that employer employers then are kind of off the hook. So um, one of the uh, plaintiffs in that case is actually a, a male who says, well, if this le- these lead levels are so dangerous for women and so dangerous for unborn children, are they really safe for men either? Uh, but that's a question that the court never addresses. Okay. So it's sort of um, it's the kind of equality without protection rather than um, so rather than forcing the, the companies to clean up their act and develop uh strategies or technologies that would limit all workers' exposure to lead, they say, well, as long as you warn workers about what they're getting into, you won't be liable for what happens to them. Okay. Now, this this issue of, of, of difference, same difference, and try to reconcile how do you how do you have equality and difference, you know, it just runs through feminist uh, movement and ideas from, for 200 years. It's just been there forever. <laughs> um but you show you talk about how these perceived differences between men and women uh, continue to haunt us, and you talk about the mommy track, which is the most mm-hmm. recent incarnation of of this. Women are different; they want to they want to have children and stay home and take care of their children, but they want to work and have careers. So we're going to develop this mommy track. Which what's the problem with that? Well, I think in some ways we're experiencing maybe some of the downside of the era of choice feminism, that if all we insist on is broader choices, more and more choices, we forfeit the ability to actually demand real substantive protections that could help everyone. So there's, there's an author who named Felice Schwartz, who in the early 1990s suggests, she's thinking in particular about women working in corporations and law firms that it's too that there should, there should women should have a choice. They should be able to be in these jobs, but opt for deliberately choose have have the option to take a job that is um, structured to be more family friendly. So um, lower hours worked expected to make partner if she's going to sort of go for partner eventually at all. Um, more sort of protection of her private time, more flexibility. But, but that the establishment of the mommy track would then allow uh, women who had the ability to and the desire to compete with men for the sort of regular jobs could be freed up to do that without being stigmatized by these other women in the workplace who were sort of um, dragging them down or sort of holding themselves to a, to a different and more lax standard. And uh, for the most part, feminists are uh, totally appalled by Schwartz's suggestion, and they say, um, you know, if setting up this separate track is going to stigmatize all women. Uh, and some feminists say we need to if, if work is this hard, if, if if this if this problem is so difficult and the idea of being uh, a full time worker who can also have some family responsibilities is so intractable. Maybe we need to think a little bit bigger about how to make work work better for everyone. Because there's no daddy track. Right. Well, the daddy track is the idea that you're a breadwinner and you have someone at home who can take care of all of the reproductive labor that makes it possible for you to be first and foremost a worker. So I think that's the that's the legacy of a lot of these struggles is that the the, the narrow definition of sex equality that ends up getting reinforced in the law and in broader culture is the insistence on uh, downplaying any kind of sex or gender differences and the insistence on uh, being treated as sort of a, a, a genderless, sexless worker who can, uh, who should be allowed to 
uh, be exploited or sort of, I don't know, worked hard as much as the next person. And certainly that has had some benefits, right? We've seen great gains against sexual harassment in the workplace, although it's still a problem. Um, we've seen women uh, entering the professional sphere and making inroads into jobs that they had very little access to in previous decades, although, of course, there are still problems there. But this this idea of equality as interchangeability really hasn't changed any of the structures of work that we've had for the past hundred years. Yeah, one of the things that you, you say, you just talked about a little bit, that the white male breadwinner standard has stayed in place. That's the standard. And women who can approximate that model do well. Right. Uh, other women, but the other women suffer economic inequality. So sexual inequality has been rebranded as class inequality. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if you look back to the, the sort of gender division of labor that structured our workplace um, 50 years ago when Title VII was passed, Certainly there are exceptions to this, but the uh, the sort of world of good jobs, professional jobs where you have some leeway, some flexibility, good pay, lots of uh, authority and autonomy, those were dominated by men and in particular white men. And the, the sort of other side of the world of work was uh, sort of women's work uh, and many men who are minorities as well, uh, contingent, uh, sort of on-call, on-demand, low-pay uh, very little job security or stability. And I argue that through, by tracing Title VII's evolution and these uh, lost opportunities to actually make sex equality law protect workers in more substantive ways beyond just treating workers interchangeably, there were lots of moments when we could have used the law to to raise all boats, right, to make the sort of lower tier of work better for those who do it, as opposed to just uh, shoring up the upper tier and giving women who could uh, approximate the sort of male breadwinner behavior access to it. Catherine, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you for discussing your book with us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. I would like to hear from you. Drop me a line through my website at www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.